I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. I am very excited about today's guests. I'm joined by Kate Kelly and Jamia Wilson. They are both activists and they are both best-selling authors. They're also the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Ordinary Equality. And on their podcast, they have these really insightful conversations about everything from the Equal Rights Amendment to doing these really great deep dives on topics like reproductive rights and abortion rights. On this episode of The Electorate, we talk about what the repeal of Roe v. Wade means in practical terms and how that decision will shape the upcoming midterm elections. We also have a frank conversation about what happens now. How do we restore something as fundamental as our reproductive rights, rights that we've had for nearly half a century? And what does a path forward even look like? So without further ado, here is my conversation with Kate Kelly and Jamia Wilson. Jamia, Kate, welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for having us on. I am so excited to talk to both of you because I'm a fan of your podcast, Ordinary Equality, and I've been a fan since its launch, right? Old school fan. Old school (laughs) fan, that's right. And, you know, you both have done an incredible job of covering abortion rights, right? And that's kind of what's on everyone's minds right now. It feels surreal to say, but I think we're maybe two and a two and a half months past Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I just want to start the conversation at the heart of the matter, like just really get into it, because I have not heard a plausible plan to restore abortion rights. You know, we have a few options. They are narrow. The options that I'm aware of would require increased majorities in Congress. But I don't know what the plan would be. So what would that look like? What would restoring Roe v. Wade look like? How would it happen? Thank you so much for having us and also for listening to Ordinary Equality. As you know, and have done for many years, like we have, lots of us have been talking about this for a very long time. And the reason we've been shouting about abortion as much as we possibly can is because the fix is not easy. It's devastating to lose Roe and it's going to have negative consequences for generations. Honestly, if we're being frank, I don't see an easy fix. There is talk about quote unquote codifying Roe. But like you said, that would require a significant increase in the majorities in Congress. And I don't see any path to 60 in the Senate in the immediate future. And I don't see any convincing of people who are on the fence about this particular issue in Congress. And so like many things folks are talking about, it's like, oh, let's just codify Roe. It's like, okay, well, let's just ride to work in a jet pad. Like it doesn't... (laughs) It's not real and we're not in the Jetsons cartoon. Like it's frustrating to hear people talk about solutions that are not realistic in the near term. Tamia, do you have anything to add there? I think that what is important is for us to really think in a big and bold way about what's possible because what we can do to restore that we actually, we have things that we can do like getting constitutional quality, making that happen, expanding the court, abolishing the filibuster, these things that push some people out of their comfort zone because they are things that would be bolder than what we've done before in recent years and would be a sign of making real progress around a lot of things, around who holds power, how power is wielded not just in the relationship with this issue of abortion care and health care, but beyond that. So for me, I want us to look at those expansive solutions and to really take them seriously. And then also there's the culture war, shifting the position 
that we have sort of in the cultural discourse that this is solely a political issue and shifting the conversation to the fact that this is a human rights, dignity, healthcare related issue and to really claim our moral authority without promoting stigma when messaging about abortion. I want to hop on to Jamia's enthusiasm and bold vision because I think both of those are required and also say, like, we're not going to stop getting abortions. Just because we can't codify Roe doesn't mean anyone is going to stop having abortions. We're going to keep getting abortions in every state in the United States, and we're going to take it on as a community responsibility until we can get that policy change that we both deserve and need. And part of that is going to be getting people medication, mifepristone and misoprostol, even in restricting states. I want to also jump on to what Jamia said, and I'm glad you both mentioned bold, right? Because midterms are right around the corner and, you know, the forecasts look good for Democrats, depending on which forecast you look at, but they will either hold on to the House and, you know, hold on to a very slim majority in Congress generally, or they'll have big gains, just depending on what forecast you look at. But I'm not so naive to think that that means if the most generous forecast ends up coming to pass. I'm not so naive to think that that means that immediately we'll have all of the abortion rights and reproductive justice rights all restored. What we need are bold changes. So if you take the Senate now, you know, you've got Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Those are the people that we talk about when we talk about, you know, things being held up. You know, they are Democrats. And, you know, if you were to ask them, do you support restoring Roe v. Wade or do you support abortion rights or take anything? Do you support democracy? Do you support, you know, voting rights? They would say yes. But if you were to go further and say, are you willing to do what needs to be done? Those bold changes, you know, expand the Supreme Court, reform the Supreme Court in the filibuster. That answer would not necessarily be yes. So I guess my question is, looking to the midterms in November and looking to who's on the ballot, new seats, you know, incumbents, are we getting better as an electorate at picking people who are willing to do those bold things to shore up democracy, to shore up our abortion rights? Ooh, this is a good question. Jamia's probably has a, a more optimistic taste of this, so I'll let you go first. <laughs> yes. It was like a Rubik's Cube in my head of looking at all the sides of this question <laughs> and feeling that, oh, there's a nuanced thought that I have about it, which is I think that it's so hard to gauge whether we are getting better at picking the right people when we have so many threats to our democracy and voter suppression that's actively happening where we need to amplify the voice of the majority. And with this voter suppression, with these disparities as it relates to voter engagement, it's hard to kind of know where we are, what is true, because you often hear sometimes when we don't win the races we need that there's a scapegoating or a blaming specifically of younger people or marginalized communities of color. When in fact, when you really look at what's been going on in those spaces, a lot of times it's related to voter suppression, lack of voter engagement, misinformation, counter speech by the opposition, things like that, that influence those races. So I do think, you know, we do have some recent wins that have shown that the vocal support and also really good organizing of people on the grounds from communities who are most effective does work. And I also think we have examples in places where we need to really make sure that we're protecting the framework of democracy and making it so that the people who are most affected can actually amplify their voices. 
to make sure that election day, I mean, I believe that election day should be a day that everyone gets off work. And that is the case in some places in this world, but not here. <laughs> so I think I think it's a multifaceted question for me because I think that there are even more people who would vote with us that we don't get to hear from in that way because they don't get access to the franchise, be it because they're ex-felons in states where ex-felons can't vote or they're not documented, but paying taxes and have lived here for many years and all those things. Um, that would warrant people, in my perspective, a right to be a part of shaping who represents them and shaping laws that support them in, in their communities. So I think it's a both and. <laughs> um, and I think we still have a lot of work to do. And I think there are, this is like where I get to be an optimist. <laughs> um, there are things people can do. And like, I just spent two years, the better part of two years working in on the House side where we did have the majority. And like you said, it's projected to potentially either keep or increase that majority, which is very exciting. And also on the Senate side, there are some very exciting races. I don't think we're going to get to 60, but we are poised to get some incredible people in the Senate. And that makes a big difference. You know, Val Demings is running against Marco Rubio in Florida. Like that would be amazing for so many reasons. There's a former chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court who's tied in that Senate race currently in polls. She is pro-choice and anti-filibuster, which is extremely exciting. Her name is Jerry Beasley. There are some very exciting races. And as you mentioned, just a few people, and by a few, I mean two, <laughs> can make a big difference in the Senate. And so if we get some of these incredible powerhouse women taking over for some of these like retrograde, fundamentally mediocre men, I think that can make a big difference and really shift the energy and enthusiasm. And can I just thank, I want to echo you. So thank you so much for speaking about Sherry Beasley. I just got really excited because she, you know, I have roots in North Carolina. We're also in the same sorority, Alpha Kappa Alpha, <laughs> Sorority Incorporated. And I'm a really huge fan and I've been feeling a lot of optimism because, you know, representationally, I just see her representing our voices in a really deep way. And what your mention of Sherry Beasley led me to think about, too, is to think about what politics as usual looks different when we change their faces, when they don't vote the way that we want. They always say that adage, you know, if you don't like their policies, change their faces mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and change their names. And I've been thinking about how changing their faces has been helpful to us in the sense of what we've seen in terms of a congressional actual hearing where congressional members shared their own abortion stories. This happened in the timeline of our lives. I don't know that I would have imagined that 20 years ago when I worked at Planned Parenthood, <laughs> that we would have a congressional hearing where we could hear from members of Congress offering personal testimony from their own abortion stories as a committee or how we saw black congresswomen come out with their own policy response when Roe fell together as a collective unit, acknowledging their power. So I'm also just kind of really interested in that. I'm really interested at, and what's happening in those individual races, but also what that collective power really means. And that's why I think so many people are scared of the squad 
because the squad came in acknowledging that they understood collective power. <laughs> um, and, you know, that really, really threatens people who want to maintain a status quo of a specific voice dominating. And I want to say something, and I promise we'll get off this tangent uh, <laughs> if it is a tangent, but I want to say something about that hearing because I was part of planning it. I worked in the House Oversight Committee and we had Representative Cori Bush tell her abortion story for the first time publicly. Representative Pramila Jayapal also told about her story. She was had a very, very high risk pregnancy, which would have been dangerous for her and the potential child. And so these are just unprecedented, like Jamia said, a group of Congresswomen telling you about their own abortion stories. And Carolyn Maloney, God bless her, just lost her primary. But one of the incredible things about her is she is very frank. And I remember someone asked her about, you know, she also did an equal rights amendment hearing and a reporter kind of stuck a microphone in front of her face and said, you know, what's the difference? What makes the difference now? Why can you have this type of hearing? And she said, because I'm the chair, like mm. mic drop. And that's all she said. I'm the chair. And so I can have these hearings. And I don't think that you, unless you, you know, you didn't see with a pro-choice man at the head of that committee or any other committee have women telling their abortion stories. So it does make a difference who is not only in Congress, but also who's in those positions of power in Congress, both in the House and the Senate. It fundamentally makes a difference who is the chair and what their experience is. Have they ever been pregnant? Is it possible for them to get pregnant? Do they share this life experience or potential with 51% of the population? It really just does make a concrete difference. Yeah, you're both right. <laughs> and I couldn't imagine this happen, happening 10 years ago, even, right? That the last midterm, major midterm we had, you know, there was a sea change, right? And it matters how many people are representative of this, of this view are on these committees or in Congress, right? You know, just having one woman or one woman of color it's important, but there's power. There's power in numbers. And then one thing you said about voter suppression, Jimmy, I wanted to talk about that because I don't know if people really fully understand the breadth of voter suppression, right? They hear it. And I think the average person, they, they know that that's a problem, but what it actually looks like in reality may not be clear for them. So just for instance, standing in line for three to five hours, that's voter suppression. <laughs> You know, having to drive miles and miles from your house or your neighborhood because, you know, Republicans or conservatives in the town have closed down all of the, you know, voting locations in your, in your neighborhood, that's also voter suppression, right? And I've stopped using the word voter apathy because for everyone in this country, it's just really, really hard to vote. We make voting hard for everyone. And I think that the people who've made it harder for everyone, they're betting on the fact that the people that they want to vote, right, will be able to get to the polls, right? So they just make it generally harder for everyone. The fact that we don't have a national holiday kind of hurts everyone, but they're hoping that it will hurt some groups more than others. So that's just my little soapbox. And there are some really good signs, for instance, I'm just kind of jumping all over the place now, but there's some really good signs. There were some special elections this month and those, you know, the turnout among women and Democrats is really high. So that's a good sign going into November. But another good sign, and I don't know if you two will agree with me, is I've seen on social media a few Republicans actually kind of stepping away from this anti-abortion stance, you know, just a few. And I can't remember their names offhand, but I think that's a good sign in that Republicans are starting to understand 
how unpopular this is and the fact that it's not going to be long where they can actually run on this, you know, extreme anti-abortion stance. I don't know if you agree with that or not. I also feel like it's like when a dog is chasing a car and then they like catch up to the car (laughs) and then they're like kind of like bewildered, like, ah, what do we do now? I caught up to the car. And so I think they've gone so far that it seems like they're very scattered and like they don't really know what to do next. Of course, we know that there is a next, which is banning contraceptives, going back on LGBTQ rights, including marriage and legal same-sex relationships. Like they've got a plan. Don't get me wrong. But I think communicating that to people and like try to make it popular when it's just like wildly unpopular, they're really, really scrambling. Yeah, haven't they been really quiet since Roe was overturned? Like, I would have expected them to be like, yeah, we did it, you know, but they've been really quiet. I actually went to the Supreme Court on the day the decision came down, about 40 minutes after the decision. And there was like, at the very beginning, there was like this sort of like celebration party thing. And you know how they kind of at the Supreme Court, they sort of like divide it into two sides. And then there's like the anti-abortion people and the pro-choice people. And that lasted like very short amount of time like they just kind of like swooped in did a little dance and left because it got dicey and hundreds and thousands of people were pouring in against the decision and it like got really awkward honestly and so they just left like the whole celebration train like pulled out of the station very very quickly and so i hope that is a mirror for the rest of everything (laughs) (laughs) you know it's interesting So that day, Kate and I were in deep communication, (laughs) Um, and it was really exciting to know that Kate was on her way within minutes (laughs) to be there and to kind of get the play-by-play. But I was on my way to France, so we taped a podcast right as it fell. I was in tears. I was messy (laughs) that day on the air, but it was authentic and raw, and then I flew to France. And for me, what was so interesting is that the energy I felt and the questions I received, there was so much more palpable outrage that I heard from just average French folks that I was encountering on a daily basis than I felt from many people here. And so when you were talking about how it seemed like the opposition was quiet, all that kind of thing, that there was something about being somewhere else and hearing more people talk about it and hearing it discussed and hearing the feeling, the energy of the outrage and comparison to what I felt I was experiencing at home was really eerie to me. And so that's something I'm thinking about. And then I was there for two weeks. And within a week, my friend, Claudine, who is a French feminist writer, amazing human being, had already helped organize 15 solidarity marches across France for us. And that was, and that they had stopped traffic in Paris with theirs, just led me to think, oh, what is it about our culture around this, that there's a silence (laughs) um, that we're feeling? We know there are many righteous voices who were protesting around the country in different places, but, you know, that there were so many people I was encountering there just saying, oh, we would have shut it down. Like none of our members of parliament would have been able to not comment on this. Everyone would have had to have something to say because we would have shut it down. And how come you guys haven't shut it all down? as something that I'm feeling a lot, that even those people we didn't hear from who don't agree with us, that they were able to go to brunch in peace in some cases <laughs> is something that, you know, some of our sisters just don't understand because it would be different. And I'm really leaning into trying to understand why that is. And I think it's rooted in stigma. 
Like in what way? I'd like to unpack this. Like why? <laughs> and stigma in what way? So I think that there's still a defensive posture that I feel that many of us have had and that has been sort of embedded in how we talk about anything reproductive health related in this society. And, you know, I guess if I were a historian, maybe I would say oh, it's rooted in Puritanism <laughs> as our biggest colonization touch point and how that has been rooted in conversations, political conversations here as it relates to privacy laws specifically. There are other ones connected to this that we could also talk about that are also in peril as a result of the falling of Roe. And so I think that the politicization of abortion specifically has come from that stigma. And I think that that also leads into how when we talk about it, we feel like we have to be, and when I say we, I just, not everyone does this, but I feel like there's a sort of collective feeling that it needs to be handled delicately, that we have to speak about this in a way that won't alienate the sort of amorphous middle in my mind, <laughs> when in fact, I think that this is just something that's not shared in a lot of other places that have had bans in the past. And I say that because French friends were telling me that they even, that the word for abortion there isn't really even used that much when people talk about abortion, that instead when they say they're going in to get a procedure, they refer to an acronym, EVJ, just to say, oh, I'm going to have this termination or I'm going to have this procedure that's going to end this pregnancy. And it's just talked about in terms of what it is, like a healthcare appointment. Right. I get that. I mean, abortion is healthcare, right? I try to say that really often. Abortion is healthcare. And so you're saying culturally in countries like France, they actually have just broadly bought into the idea that it's not a political thing. It's just a healthcare procedure. Exactly. And that it's a healthcare procedure. So in terms of abortion as healthcare in the conversation, I feel that when I ask my friends in these countries where authoritarianism is rising and I ask, okay, so your most extreme people, where do they land on this issue? In most cases, in places like France, for example, even sort of their most extreme person who, thank God, didn't win in the last election, that she is actually pro-choice because she has to be to win, that it's so mainstreamed there that this is healthcare and it's a personal decision and people should get access, that even Marine Le Pen is pro-choice on her platform and agenda and pro-access to healthcare. And there are other places where this is also the case. I often think about when we talk about abortion as healthcare, we're trying to pretend like we're in Europe where healthcare is also not political. <laughs> Or as political, it's like, oh, yeah, healthcare is a human right. And they have federal systems that provide healthcare for people. And in the United States, it's difficult to like promote abortion care as healthcare because healthcare itself is politicized and it is not a defeated question. It is not an, a done deal. We don't have a federal healthcare system. So there are people in this country who don't have healthcare because we don't believe in it. And so it's, to me, it's also hard to defend something that's unpopular with another thing that's also unpopular or that we haven't yet achieved, which is universal healthcare as a human right and part of a natural human dignity. And many people have been fighting for that. Of course, feminists have been fighting for that for decades, but we don't have it yet. And so it's not a given that healthcare is a thing that people get when they need it in this country. And I, I've been reading a lot about ACT UP 
and the work that ACT UP, which is an AIDS group, started in New York and spread over the country to fight for patients with AIDS and HIV. And ACT UP's actual primary goal was to get universal health care. Of course, they wanted to fight for drugs and ACT and the promotion of all these different drugs. But their main ask and their, their overarching ask was to get universal health care, which, as we know, didn't ever happen. And so I think it's so funny because all of these other countries also have such a different structure. And so the stakes for abortion care in our country are sometimes so much higher. If you're forced to have a baby, you don't have health care. You don't have guaranteed universal basic income. You don't have guaranteed housing. You don't have guaranteed quality education. You don't have any of these other things that any of these other people have in France, for example, or any of these other European countries. So it's actually so much worse. No one should ever be forced to carry a pregnancy to term anywhere under any circumstances. But in this country, you could argue it's, it's far worse because there's no social infrastructure. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. You know, because even when I say it, and so first of all, I want to say that, that words matter and, and how we talk about these things matter because one of the things I started doing is to use the word reproductive justice because it's a lot broader. But then I thought, you know, am I deliberately or, you know, moving away from the word abortion? We need to use the word abortion freely. We need to talk about reproductive justice in the context of this and also abortion as healthcare. But I feel like whenever I say abortion is healthcare, even though I believe that, whenever I say it publicly, I feel like I'm trying to push a boulder like up a hill, right? Like just because we don't have universal healthcare, it feels like it's a hard thing for people to buy into. Do you know what I mean? Abortion is healthcare. Also, we need healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I do think in a good way, it ties it to a, a larger ask. And that's why I bring up ACT UP. It's like they had a very, very narrow and specific ask and actually worked with reproductive rights groups at the time. But then it was tied to this larger goal of universal free healthcare for all Americans. And so I think if we're able to tie abortion, for example, to the larger ask of universal free health care in a way that hasn't been done yet, it's going to be more popular. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't matter how you feel one way or the other about abortion. Do you think you should have health care? So I think there's a long way to go. And the reproductive justice framework is incredibly helpful. The term and framework came up by Loretta Ross and other Black women to really help us understand that reproductive justice isn't just about ha not having children, but also having the children you want, having them in a safe environment, being able to raise them in a way that honors their dignity as human beings. And so all of that is incorporated into this reproductive justice framework. And I think, like you said, we don't have to shy away from abortion in order to like open things up to a more ample conversation. I think our messaging around this needs a lot of refining because one of the things that I don't think we have been very good at messaging with is, you know, how this impacts communities beyond women, right? Every time I see someone, a politician tweet or give an interview and they talk about this is a women's issue, I, I cringe because as we all know, it's not just a women's issue. It's anyone who can get pregnant, even people who can't get pregnant. Like you mentioned, we were talking about this, you know, women who are in menopause, so just give me some examples of how this impacts the LGBTQ community, for instance, how it affects people who can't get pregnant. Just how broad is this issue? I think it's really important to address this for many reasons, including but not limited to women's issues are unpopular. <laughs> like siloing it. I hate to say this as a feminist and a women's rights activist, but 
siloing it into a quote unquote women's issue means it's doomed to fail. And opening it up to a conversation about the actual impact is a winning strategy. I think it's first off important to talk about how reproductive justice is an LGBTQ issue because queer people can get pregnant. I'm in a lesbian relationship at any point. We could decide that we want to have a baby and all of these issues would impact us because people who get abortions, of course, are not only people who got pregnant accidentally, but also pregnancy and childbirth are very dangerous and things can happen along those nine months that put the pregnant person in danger. And so you could have a very wanted pregnancy still end in an abortion to save the life of the pregnant person. And so I think it's important to expand the idea of who needs abortion care specifically, and then also reproductive rights in general. Like you said, there are all kinds of uh, misoprostol, which is uh, one of the two abortion drugs, is used for many other things. So it can be used for miscarriage management. It can be used for people who are going through menopause. It can be used for many different conditions. And so when they're banning these drugs or attempting to ban these drugs in states, they are only banning them for one use. <laughs> like you can still be prescribed this drug for menopause care or for miscarriage management. You just can't, you have to prove that you're not using it for this one specific thing, which is unfathomable and also puts all of these other thousands of people who need the drug for other conditions at risk, in danger, with many delays in care. And so I think we're really just at the tip of the iceberg for people in this country realizing what these bans really are and who they will actually impact. And that includes older people, that includes the queer community, that includes everyone. It includes everyone because also the cis men who are impregnating people <laughs> are now going to be on the hook for a lot more child care and a lot more child support. And they're going to be having a lot more babies that they didn't want or consent to in ways that are about to be very, very, very shocking to that community. Actually, one of the very first episodes I did for the electorate was about that very issue, you know, covering what reproductive justice, you know, what it covers, there is this concept of, you know, these peripheral people who are around the pregnant person, the partner, you know, the family, the grandparents, right? The people in the community, we are all impacted when there is a situation where we have forced births, right? Where women or the people who can get pregnant don't have full autonomy. Everyone's affected. It's not just a women's issue. So that's why I said I cringe every time I hear that. <laughs> So how does this impact Black women and people of color disproportionately? So thank you so much for asking this question. I think that when talking about who Roe is going to hurt, it's going to hurt a lot of people. And as Kate said, this is an issue that is a failure of democracy for all of us, that Black women disproportionately will be impacted because when you look at how we are on the front lines of almost every issue of marginalization in this country, it is really, really stunning to think about what will be both the physical, the fiscal, and the emotional cost of gaining access to reproductive care and comprehensive care. And the reason I'm saying cost is because we're already facing a tremendous amount of obstacles as it relates to healthcare costs without having access to healthcare equity and support. We don't have access to childcare that is affordable and comprehensive. 
We also have high maternity mortality rates in this country across class, but also specifically impacting working class folks even more and working class families. And we will be feeling the brunt of this ban in really deleterious and deadly ways. Moreover, we will also have to think about what is already happening as it relates to criminalization in this country and the disproportionate amount of criminalizations for nonviolent offenses that Black and brown women face. And thinking about the inextricable connection between the far right tying these laws and bans to increase criminalization is a direct hit and dog whistle to incarcerating more Black women. And then also, in my view, making it so that there are less Black women voters who are a big threat to them as the backbone of the Democratic Party and holding democracy in within my lifetime, at least, of voting. So I think there's a lot that's at stake when you look at the states where you're seeing so many of these trigger bans and who is most impacted, Black women, Latinas, Indigenous women, and Indigenous folks who get pregnant, we'll see the deepening of the economic disparities. We'll see the deepening of the menacing presence of criminalization in the prison industrial complex. And this is why we have to pull this back. This is why we cannot accept this because there's so much at stake and there's a lot at stake that could set us back to a place that would be hard to come back from. And we have already in this country, more women in the United States dying of childbirth every year than any other developed nation. And Black women in that equation are thrice times more likely to die from complications related to pregnancy than our white counterparts. And so when I think about myself and others who have chronic illnesses, who, you know, at my age, I'd be considered a higher risk geriatric pregnancy, which, you know, I have issues with, but that's another conversation. (laughs) Um, That just going in, knowing that there would be a lack of support if I needed to make decisions to save my own life, depending on where I lived, and that I could be incarcerated for trying to value and save my own life is a violation of my human dignity and respect to my autonomy as a grown up, as a human. So there's just so much at stake. And I think that we have to keep connecting to folks that this is a labor issue. This is an economic issue. This is a cultural issue. This is a racial justice issue that there is no part of American life that is left untouched by this. And those of us who are on the front lines of being the most harmed by bad policies will just have a deeper deleterious effect as a result of this ban. So you were telling a story before we started recording thing, a story that inspired you with a college student. Can you tell me more about that? Yes. So I woke up this morning and I was just really inspired to see this story that the Meteor Collective had posted about how Talia Cantor-Lieber, who's a high school junior, began thinking about what about colleges as it relates to Roe and access to support for people in states with these bans, being able to get travel support. And when she heard about companies offering access to their employees around out-of-state expenses, she was thinking about 
well, what does this mean when you're thinking about schools that you would go to, the access you would get? How would your school make sure that they're helping to take care of your health care and protection? And over the course of six weeks, she reached out to 61 schools in states where there are bans or where there are impending bans that are at risk of getting passed. And she stated that the majority of those schools, schools to, that had upwards of over 400,000 students attending who could potentially get pregnant, were not able to get students access to care they might need, did not forthrightly come forward with plans for how they would provide that support. And this report that Talia wrote for the Meteor Newsletter really shows this sort of sense of uncertainty as the Meteor describes it, confusion as they describe it, and what it means that only five of those schools even sort of hinted that they might have a plan. And there she offered a list, but also provided a list of the schools that just stated outright that there was going to be no support. And then also how to push to get your school to give clarity and answers. So I just, I think that this is really important example of the kind of everyday activism that all of us can get engaged in to think about what are the spaces that relate to me in my life and my community or relate to the people in my community or help support people in getting access and care that I might be able to move the needle on and what is it I can do. In her case, she wrote and did this research and provided this amazing service and also now also social pressure by unearthing and enlivening this because I'm sure there's going to be people who are going to contact their universities for more clarity, especially those who said no, flat out. And I just wonder what that invitation is that when I see the kind of everyday activism of Talia and others, I just really think about what is it that each of us can do? What's the intervention that we can do today, this week, this month, this year, in spaces where we can really move the needle? Some of us have the gift of writing. Some of us can phone bank, canvas, do texting for electeds or texting for nonprofits who we support. Some of us can be clinic escorts. Some of us can go and deliver pizzas or order pizzas for people who are picking <laughs> outside Supreme Court justices' homes. <laughs> what is it that each of us can do? How can we take action? How can we ask the right questions? How can we put on the pressure, unearth the truth, surface the optimism of people who are saying, we're not going to accept this and we will move forward and we'll move forward together. We are organizing. So I just was really moved by that. And it led me to think about where are the spaces that I can lift up the stories to and be on the side of truth telling and the side of comprehensive access to care for everybody who needs it. I love that story. And you said it was in Meteor News? Yes, they are. They are. And I am excited to see what's going to come up from this because I just think it was so well done. And I'm excited to see that this also came from a high school student, which led me to think, and I'm just going to say, if we lowered the voting age, we would see even more widespread support for comprehensive access. And that's just something that is also in my thought about thinking bigger and being more expansive about democracy moving forward for the next generations. Well, Jamia, Kate, thank you so much for joining me. This this conversation gives me some hope. And yeah, and it's just thank you for everything you've done. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for the really great questions you're asking. And it gave me hope too, just that, that you're asking these questions, <laughs> um, that, you know, that people will hear them and that we'll keep pushing. I do feel like the activism people are doing to take into their hands, doing what we can each do to dig deeper 
It's really moving and meaningful. Onward to November. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, yes.